Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is a podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance, not just for themselves, but for the common good as well. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today we're at episode number 113, and I'm calling it The Future of Humanity. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Dr. Fred Spear, who's a retired senior lecturer in big history at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. We discuss his most recent book, Big History and the Future of Humanity. In 1993, Fred became the driving force for teaching and investigating big history at the University of Amsterdam, about which he wrote two pioneering books. You can find out more about his career in the show notes for this episode. And I'm now joined by Fred Spear from Amsterdam. Hello, Fred. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? Excellent. And, uh, of course, you've written a a book uh, that we're going to talk about. It's called Big History and the Future of Humanity. Why did you want to write this book? Well, first of all, uh, let me explain what big history is, because not all listeners may know that. Big history is an attempt to write a history of everything from the beginning of the universe until us here, right here, right now. And that involves the history of the universe, the history of the solar system, the history of our planet, of life, and of humanity. And it seems like an impossible enterprise, but actually it's it's very doable. And we started doing that in 1994 in the form of a university course and the model of which we adapted from a course that had been developed in Australia by the historian David Christian. So we copied this course that consists of lecturers lecturing about all these different topics. So astronomers who tell you about history of the universe, geologists and biologists about the history of the earth and life, and then historians, social scientists who do uh, human history and archaeologists. So when uh, we started doing that, that seemed like a, a huge enterprise. But I realized first that by structuring this course, we were also to some extent structuring big history, which was quite a daring thought at the time. But uh, that's what I wrote my first book about. It was called uh, The Structure of Big History with a proposal to do that, which I think still stands. Uh, but then learning more uh, in many different ways, with the aid of many others, uh, I developed a simple theoretical model that can help to explain uh, big history. And I hit upon that idea now some 17 years ago. It took me a few years to develop it and then write the book. So the first version of that book was published in 2010, and that presented a very simple model. And that was the reason behind writing this book. But why I do big history, that has a different reason. That is basically to find out how everything got to be the way it is in this troubling situation humanity finds itself in. So I think in the hope that by knowing better all of that, we can make better decisions for the future. One thing I liked about the book uh, was that you offered a theory about how increasing complexity was created throughout big history. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of that that, uh, theory? Sure. 
Well, you can think of big history as uh, increasing levels of complexity. When it starts out with the Big Bang, which is incredibly simple, uh, so there's hardly any complexity at all. And then if you get galaxies and stars and planets, especially on planets, things become more complex, and especially on a planet with life, such as Earth, things become even more complex. And with us humans creating all the complexity that we've been doing, that's perhaps the highest complexity we know of. So the question is, how is that possible? And it is a bigger problem because there is something that's called the, the second law of thermodynamics that tells us that everything should actually become more chaotic over time. So how does that happen? And my US colleague, the astrophysicist Eric Chasen had been working on that. And he wrote a very good book about it called Cosmic Evolution, published about 20 years ago, in which he proposes that what you need is in certain pockets of the universe, you can get complexity. And what you need to get that is you need an energy flow through matter. It's as simple as that. But the total result is more chaos, even though you can get, for example, a lot of complexity on the surface of the Earth. And the rest of the universe, as a result, is a little more chaos. How that works, I could explain, but that would take a little more. So I find that. I found that very uh, convincing, but not entirely satisfying because I felt something was lacking. And then I realized at a certain point in time that we need to think about not only about these forms of complexity, but we also need to think about the circumstances they find themselves in. So what is a good circumstance for us? We would not want to uh, go up, let's say, 40 miles high in the sky because we'd immediately die. And if we do the same into the earth, that won't work very well either. So for us, good circumstances are on the surface of this planet, let's say in a range between zero and three, four miles at most. The very thin layer on, uh, on a planet swinging through space, and that is offering us good circumstances. But these circumstances are not good for the sun, for instance. The sun needs a lot of empty space around it to get rid of all its uh, radiation and its heat. Otherwise it blew, blow up right away. So what you can think of is that every type of complexity requires its own circumstances that are good enough for it to exist. And if you add that to the energy through matter approach, then I think you get the contours of a theory of history that works all through big history from the Big Bang until today. And that is what my book is about. And I'm not going to claim it's going to explain everything, certainly not. I think you can look at it a bit like you can look at gravity. Gravity is a great theory for explaining why things fall and how they move and everything like that. Uh, it's a very simple theory that is applicable to all these things, and you cannot think of physics without gravity. But does it explain everything in physics? No, it doesn't. So I see my work as a step along the way of trying to find increasing numbers of theories uh, explaining all of history. I think in the world uh, where the second law of thermo thermodynamics is sort of operative, uh, one asks the question, you know, how do you get more complexity? And instead of things running down, how do they in fact become uh, more complex? And 
Uh, I think one of those explanations uh, as far as the starting of life is around the, you know, the black smokers down in the deep ocean uh, where uh, a lot of the chemicals were, were present that, uh, you know, life could first start. At least that's, that's one explanation. We did actually an episode uh, number 66, uh, two or three years ago, about um, uh, David Christensen's um, eight uh, steps through, the, through big history, uh, which kind of gave uh, our listeners a little bit of a background. But, you know, it was about 10,000 years ago that mankind, mankind first started intentionally managing the world for its benefit as part of the Neolithic Revolution. And that's where, um, you know, crops and domestic livestock stock, uh, uh, were first managed. And this is a part of big history that's, that's closer to our, our, our relevance today. Given the theory that you just talked about, how can we better understand uh, this, this part of, of our own history? Yes, well, first of all, I think we have to realize that all of us are eating solar energy, and it is solar energy captured by plants, and then we might eat those plants, or it's first eaten by animals, and then we might eat the animals. So you could say that the energy flow from the sun is captured by life to create its own complexity, and it may be eaten by all forms of life to create their own complexity, and then we eat it to create and maintain our complexity. Today, you see the theory immediately in action. And, and the Neolithic uh, revolution is, is about the fact that suddenly humans popped out of what is known as this trophic pyramid. The trophic pyramid is all these organisms eating each other while the original energy comes from the sun. Um, so you could say humans popping out of the trophic pyramid and trying to control, if not dominate it. So what we're doing is we're trying to make grow all the plants that we like to eat and the animals that we like to eat or use for other purposes. And we want to get rid of all the rest because they're basically using up space and energy that we want to use for other purposes. So that is what the Neolithic agrarian revolution is about in simple terms. And looking backwards, we can also look forward. Uh, clearly, the next 100 years, uh, not to mention the next 10,000 years, will be very challenging for mankind due to various resource constraints and mounting entropy and the difficulties in maintaining, you know, the Goldilocks conditions that you talk about in your book uh, that we've enjoyed for the last 10,000 years. That's the climate being very favorable to uh, our crops and our animals and, and just general life uh, of humans. So how can we uh, understand um, our understanding of the past point to some lessons for the next hundred years? Well, we have to think of that we're all living on a planet that's not getting any bigger, while human population has been exploding and it may be leveling off, but still we are is eight, perhaps close to nine billion people on the planet. And not only that, but most of us want more than ever before in terms of, of material uh, stuff. And for that, we need uh, more resources, we need more energy, and we're also producing more, more chaos, more entropy. So 
that is in a nutshell uh, the problem we're facing. While the planet is not getting any bigger, so that means that there is less and less space for each of us on the planet and less and less access to these resources. So how are we going to deal with that? That is, I think, the big challenge we're facing. And I find it a worrying situation. I'm not sure I should say it, uh, but it, to me, it, it looks like riding some kind of a bus and half of the people, perhaps three quarters, are working extremely hard to harvest enough matter and energy to keep the complexity going. And then all part is, is partying like never before. And we're driving on the road and it gets increasingly bumpy and suddenly we probably end up in a crevasse. That's what it looks like to me. And, and not enough attempt to think long-term, to get an overview and to adapt our policies to this situation. And not only are individual humans um, doing this, but organizations around the world uh, have seen tremendous growth. Um, and that's one thing we talk about on this podcast, uh, including you know, business, government, and nonprofit. How would uh, big history um, explain this phenomenon and, and suggest um, you know, things that we might uh, need to consider there? Well, first of all, let's say the enormous explosion of these organizations is due to the extremely rapid technically advances in, in communication during the Industrial Revolution and now the Information Revolution. That's what's causing it. And that's what makes the organizations possible. Without communication, we wouldn't be talking here, me in Amsterdam, you in Texas. Um, and, and it's the same for all these organizations. So it, it makes possible forms of cooperation that have never existed before. But you could also say that humans are endowed by, by speaking and other ways of communicating with far more and far more fine-tuned forms of communication than any other animal and that has developed over the past four or five million years. So probably humans like you and me were very similar 10,000 years ago and dealt with the same communication capabilities. So the increase is due to the technical advances, the telegraph, the radio, telephone, etc. Of course, all the more recent technological innovations. Yeah. How could the general theory uh, that we talked about and explained in your book, how could that be useful for businesses in particular? Well, I find the theory very useful for analyzing any type of organization. In my teaching, I used to explain that to my students and ask them, how do you think your college works? What do you think are the energy flows, in this case, money flows? that keep the complexity of our college going. So if you try to trace that, then you suddenly get a very clear view of, hey, that is how the place works. And I think you could do the same with businesses. Um, you can just make a sort of kind of a complexity map and you can say, okay, that is the energy costs. And uh, it's also some, let's say, chaos that it is uh, generating. So is it worth, is this addition to our company, is this complexity worth the energy costs, the money costs? And you can also wonder, are, what about the circumstances? Have we created sufficiently good circumstances for our business? And 
how can we understand the environment that we're operating in? Because also there you can apply this complexity uh, analysis very quickly. So what, what kind of customer do they have? What kind of complexity are they interested in? And also you can wonder about, let's say, yeah, relatively autonomous developments within your own business. And I have one example in mind that I know from personal experience, and that was a research lab at an electronics firm that basically had to uh, solve production problems of a certain product. And the director of that lab had told one of his employees when he was appointed, well, you know what? It's not a good idea to solve all the problems, all the production problems, because then we'll be out of business. So what do you do with such a situation? Would the higher management know that? Would they realize that, that as such developments are happening inside the company? But from, let's say, that research lab's position, it was an entirely understandable approach because yeah, no energy flows, that's the end of your complexity. But it's not perhaps what you want to do as a company as a whole. So how do you manage all these situations trying to understand the portions, the parts of your company as relatively autonomous units that may try to pursue their own uh, interests in terms of complexity and energy? I could say a lot more about it, but uh, perhaps this is enough for the time being. Yeah, well, in earlier times, you know, um, the Goldilocks conditions uh, were created by nature. Uh, but the Anthropocene, which is the sort of geologic epoch we're in right now, uh, era that we're in right now, where man is the dominant um, mover on the planet and his organizations, as we just talked about, uh, are some of the biggest movers of, of everything on the planet, including uh, information flows and energy flows and uh, flows of finance and this sort of thing. It seems to require that mankind himself or herself manage these Goldilocks conditions in order to maintain the complexity that's, that's here and that is to come. And certainly we're having accelerating energy flows and energy is not limitless. Uh, there are limits to, to certainly fossil fuels um, uh, that we can tap. So what does big history have to say about the current path we're on? Uh, you, you mentioned a couple of things earlier, but uh, if we look forward for the next uh, you know, 10 to 100 years, uh, certainly um, uh, many are calling for uh, uh, direct address of, to the global warming problem, but that's only one of the problems that we face. Yes, well, assuming that most of us will stay on the planet, which I think we will, so I would like to uh, stick to thinking about how to keep this planet habitable. Yes, we have to make sure that uh, we live within our means. And in the end, that solar energy, a little bit of geo geothermal energy as well, but it's mostly solar energy. So if we maintain our complexity, that's the energy source, I think. Nuclear, there's also some nuclear, but... Uh, perhaps not for really long periods of time. Well, it also creates the problem of uh, a lot of chaos, a lot of entropy. What, uh, what do we do with the leftover stuff? Where do we store it? We haven't solved that problem yet. Um, and that's a general problem that we do. We, we creating so much material complexity, but we also putting 
into nature so many chemical substances that are not originally there by nature. And that means that there are very few natural cycles that can recycle the things under powered by the sun in the end. So that means that and we've seen that with plastics, but there are many other substances as well that are accumulating and can create all kinds of uh, havoc. So what kind of Goldilocks circumstances would we create? Well, let's try to stick to the already existing geological cycles, I would suggest. Try to limit the output of uh, stuff that we cannot take care of. Try to stick to the sources, recycle as much as possible. But also recycling means adding a layer of complexity to it for which you need more energy. So that is the kind of catch we find ourselves in. Um, but still, if we want to assure, let's say, a good future for our children and those who come after them, then we really have to take this very, very seriously. And I think it should be a first concern for all governments all over the planet. Yeah, so you see a, a big role for government. And, and I certainly agree. Also on this podcast, we talk a lot about management and we're looking for ways to uh, manage the future, certainly. And we've had a, a podcast uh, not too long ago about managing the next 10,000 years. Which, which was started by looking back at the last 10,000 where the Neolithic revolution started. Clearly, management itself uh, is, is an area that presents promise, but also the current uh, way of managing uh, is, is up against the problems you just mentioned. Unfortunately, we can't solve all of these things today, as you know, uh, but are there other things that we haven't talked about uh, that you'd like to mention before we close? Well, perhaps, uh, again, my, my motivation of engaging in big history is to try to make sure the best we can is how we got where we are, what it has taken us, what the general principles are that appear to be ruling history, and as a result, will also rule the future in whatever form it may take. But I also think it, it is very hard to foresee the future, even going back, let's say, 500 years, who would have foreseen the Industrial Revolution, let alone the Digital Revolution? So managing 10,000 years seems like a little optimistic to me, but I do think we should think about the next generations and trying to make sure that we leave them an Earth that remains habitable. Yeah, clearly uh, each generation has its own um, challenges and they need to leave something um, better for the future. But let's, let's stop there for today. Thanks very much uh, for being with us, Fred. And uh, we'll have uh, notes to your books on, on the show notes. How is the best way for people to um, follow up and uh, find out more? Well, they can go to uh, the website dedicated to the book and at the www.bighistory.info. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much for your kind invitation. Great questions. I'm so happy with your interest in my uh, book. It's a fascinating area. And I think, um, you know, it's one that we will continually uh, grapple with here now for, for some time. Yes, I think so too. 
And that's about it for today. Join us again next time when we'll explore more stories about organizations and their performance, not just for themselves, but for the common good as well. You can explore all of our podcast episodes at our website, ageofoe.com. And if you'd like to find out more about the future of humanity and how your organization can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem, pick up a copy of my book, uh, Become Truly Great, Serve the Common Good Through Management by Positive Organizational Effectiveness. It's out on Amazon, as well as other booksellers that you may be familiar with. And I'm your host, Charles Chandler, saying so long for now.